I want to zoom in with you on one of those moments from God's story with us when it seems like there's no way. One of those moments when the grip of sin and death is seeping in and taking charge and it seems like there's no way. That's been our journey together these past couple weeks. There's no way. It's the cry of desperation that sin and brokenness and despair leave us clinging to. There's no way. It's the actual forecast of a world separate from hope in Christ. There's no way. It's the very real cries of our hearts when the pain is too deep and the sickness is too acute and we really can't seem to imagine a way through. There's no way. It can be pretty personal, this cry of there's no way. No way that here in the midst of my pain, God might do something beautiful. No way that I might actually be someone that God loves. There's no way. No way that the sin that so easily entangles my life will ever let up and give way to flourishing and wholeness. No way my hurting friend will ever come to know God. There's no way that my family will see me who, for who I really am. There's no way. The cry of there's no way can be quite personal, and it can also be quite large scale, global even. There's no way that a world devastated by hurricanes and fires could ever give way to a restored earth, a renewed soil, a, a place, a land where all things really are made new. There's no way. There's no way that this hurting world that holds the shooting in Oakland and the violence in Iran and the fighting in Ukraine will ever be transformed into a community characterized by embrace, belonging, peace, mutual love and understanding, true worship of God, there's no way. So listen with me to another moment in God's story with us when it really seems like there's no way. A moment when God offers his very presence and self to a people in the wilderness. This is a story characterized by the stunning power and presence of a mighty God who speaks and meets with his people. Just to catch you up, God has already given Moses the burning bush, the Israelites deliverance through the Red Sea, water from a rock, manna to sustain them, but still wilderness, wilderness. They're in the wilderness. So listen with me. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said to him, 
Thus you shall say to the house of Israel and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you will be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speak to you and so trust you thereafter. When Moses had told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And prepare for the third day, because on the third day, I will come down from Mount Sinai inside of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, and saying, be careful not to go up to the mountain or to touch it, for if you do, anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows. Whether human or animal, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall go up the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Prepare for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of the trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now all of Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, and the smoke went up like the smoke from a kiln, while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke to God, and the Lord answered him in thunder. This is the word of the Lord. What a powerful scene. The power and presence of a mighty God who speaks and meets with his people. A God who breaks through the there's no way grip of sin and chooses to seek out his people, chooses to speak to them in fire and a dark cloud and give the forces of death in the world a run for their money, all because of his great love. This is a God who is mighty enough present enough, kind enough, loving enough to begin to take history by the reins again, although he had never actually let go, and rewrite a story of goodness and hope. Here's what I want us to notice together, and then we'll come to the table. The crucial setting 
a subtle logic and the already consecrated reality of a people in Christ. First, the crucial setting, the scene is set so intentionally. On the third day after, on the third new moon, after the day that the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from, Eph, from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. There must be something important about the wilderness. Or at least something important about what God does in the wilderness. Because the, the repetition tells us to pay attention. Before the whole account of God coming in the cloud and fire and the people consecrating themselves, we're supposed to notice that this is happening in the wilderness. Now, I don't know if you were a Boy Scout, or if you worked at camp, or if you've ever spent an extended amount of time in the wilderness, but the wilderness is a place that I love dearly, and so to gather our hearts around the complex realities of the wilderness, I have a few photos to show us. This first picture is from the Judean wilderness which is actually closer to the real wilderness where the Israelites might have been. Gorgeous rolling sand hills, shining sun, bright blue sky. This is a picture from a trip I took during college to Israel-Palestine. And it was hot, dry, dusty, remote, even deadly. Here's another wilderness area. This is from the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, my favorite place in the world. Glassy lakes, remote sunsets when it's just you and the moose and the loons and the walleye. And swarms of mosquitoes, heavy canoes to carry, no cell service, only the hopes that our satellite phone would still have battery if anything happened. You can only get helicoptered out of there. It's deadly. This next series of pictures is from the Manistee River Trail. In my opinion, it's the closest and best backpacking experience to the Grand Rapids Holland area. It's called the Manistee River Trail. I hiked this in December of 2020 with my friend Ellen Disher when we both found ourselves in really angsty places in need of a good 20-mile hike. Fluffy snow, rushing river, evergreen forests, stunning beauty, and bitterly cold toes that gave way to numbness. Instant coffee that only tasted good in our imaginations sleeping bags that did not live up to their temperature ratings, and the very real question of if our bodies would be warm enough in the morning to hike 13 miles out of there. These next pictures are from Bandelier National Park, where I backpacked with my sister two spring breaks ago. It's in New Mexico. This was April 2021 with my sister Emily. We did a backpacking loop through the desert complete with beautiful sunrises, gorgeous canyons, 
daintily beautiful desert flowers that don't dare to grow in the Midwest, and the whole place to ourselves. We had some great conversations. And we ran out of water, barely could find the trail in some of the sandiest, windiest sections, and almost tore each other apart in the most visceral moments of our bickering, disagreement, and thorough frustration. The wilderness doesn't mess around. Yeah, it's beautiful, and it's also brutal. Because the wilderness confronts us with our most basic needs. Because that's all we can handle in the wilderness. On a backpacking trip, the goals are simple. Eat, drink water, find the next place to sleep, and survive. Get where you need to go. Travel, eat, sleep. In the wilderness, the unpredictable nature of the woods, the trail, the desert, they carry enough challenge of their own. Eat, sleep, survive. That's the wilderness mindset. Sure, take in a little beauty while you're out there too. But if you've ever been in the wilderness for longer than a day hike, you know that the primal need to survive takes over pretty quickly. It can be fun, but it's certainly type two fun. Have you heard of type two fun? Type two fun is miserable when it's happening, but fun in retrospect. <laughs> Sam, I would venture to assume that an Iron Man might be type two fun. Or did you enjoy it while you were doing it? Type two fun, yeah. Miserable while it's happening and fun in retrospect. All that to say, in the story of Israel and the story of our life with God as God's beloved people, there must be something significant about the wilderness. On the third new moon, after the day the Israelites had journeyed from the land of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. I'm guessing a few of you know a thing or two about the wilderness. The survival mode, day by day, will I make it through kind of space. The God give me manna because I can't make it another day space. And the wilderness is brutal. Perhaps it's a spiritual wilderness of getting just enough of an experience of God's presence to keep believing, but not the emotional high you were expecting or the intimate connection with God that you really long for, that can feel like a wilderness. Take heart. Because here at least, in Exodus 19, the wilderness is precisely where God meets his people. He doesn't lead them out of the wilderness, at least not yet. He doesn't eliminate the day-by-day -day neediness of their situation. But after providing food and water and exactly what they need, despite their grumbling, God gives them his very presence. Moses brought the people out of the camp to the base of the mountain, then they took their stand to meet God. In the wilderness, the Israelites meet God. The one who made the whole earth and made humans and provides for them and loves them. In the wilderness, God meets his people. 
There's something precious to God about our wilderness seasons. The seasons when we're barely hanging on and making it through the day and longing for relief. It's in those moments of there's no way that in God's compassion and power and love, God promises to meet with us. Not because he caused the wilderness, but because he promises to be with us in the midst of it. In the wilderness, God meets his people. The setting is crucial. Second, there's a subtle logic here. In verses 4 and 5, it's the subtle logic of Christian faithfulness. These are the words that the Lord is instructing Moses to share with the people. The Lord says, Have you seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself? Now, therefore, now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Have you seen? Now, therefore. Have you seen? Now, therefore. It's the subtle logic of Christian faithfulness. God first, we respond. God is the mover and shaker. We participate. It's God's spirit saying, you have seen my kindness and mercy and love and my gracious advocacy for you throughout my story with you. Now, therefore, be who you are, my treasured possession. Obey in response. You have seen how I fill in the blank in your life. Now, therefore, be who you are, my children, in response. This is God's voice for you. This is good news. You have seen how I drew you to myself despite your family situation, how I led you to this community despite your loneliness, how I made a way through the depths of melancholy for you to be seen by me. Now, therefore... Live your life in response. Serve, give, love. Choose the path of generosity. Obey my voice of leading. It's only for your good. There's no way God could ever love me after what I've done. Actually, that's not the logic. God loves first. Have you seen what God did in Jesus Christ for you? Now respond as God's children because it's actually true. God first. God's action, God's love, always first. It's reminiscent of the prophet Isaiah shouting, Have you not seen? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of heaven and earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strength. Wait for the Lord. Renew your strength. You have seen what God has done. Now, therefore, live in response. You have seen, now therefore. Point backwards, retell the story of what God has done for you, and live like you believe it, because God's faithfulness really will actually continue from this moment on. It's the subtle logic of Christian faithfulness. And and finally, the already consecrated reality of a people in Christ. Look at the second chapter, the second half of this chapter of Exodus 19. It's all about preparing. Consecration. 
It's the holy process of abstaining from touching anything unclean in order to be pure in the presence of God. And it was an important process for God and his people. God's instructions here are pretty detailed, and there's a weightiness to it. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and prepare for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on the mountain. All the calls to holiness, all the technicalities and meticulousness of it all, it's all testifying to the holiness, beauty, and stunningly perfect love of God. And it's all pointing for us to the already consecrated reality of a people in Christ. So think of Moses. He represented God to the people and the people to God. Moses reported what the people had said to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses to tell the people. Moses is a mediator so that the Israelites might come to know God and pursue holiness. And Moses' faithful yet flawed mediation and leadership points towards Jesus, who gives us even more perfect mediation toward God. The author to the letter of the Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partners in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses, who was faithful in all God's house. Yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we hold firm with boldness and the pride inspired by hope. Christ was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. And what that all means is this. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So what does that all mean for us? Christ has made us spotless, without sin, blameless, and we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, not because we're perfect, but because Christ is, because we are in Christ. We've been made holy or consecrated because of Christ's death and resurrection that is the atoning sacrifice for us. The God who speaks to us, loves us, draws near to us, and promises to be with us today is the same God who appeared to his chosen people on the mountain in a dark cloud and through fire. And that same God speaks to us here and now and offers himself to us in closeness with Christ as our mediator, all because of Jesus, peace, proximity, and love that we can taste and experience, all because of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We're going to come to the table in a few minutes. First, you'll notice there's a notepad and a few pens on your table. 
I want to invite you all to consider a few questions. Bob's going to play some music over the speakers, and we're going to have a couple minutes of reflections together. I want you to ask in your heart, what did you hear? Or what did you hear God saying? What did you hear God saying to you? What are you curious about? And what are you carrying from this story into the week ahead? So we'll take a few minutes together to reflect in silence, and then I'll invite us to share at our tables if you'd be willing, and then we'll come to the table.